We would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Preborn. When a mother meets her baby on an ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine connection. And the majority of the time, she will choose life. But she can't do it without our help. Preborn needs us, the pro-life community, to come alongside her. One ultrasound is just $28. To donate, dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby or visit preborn.com. Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. The U.S. Constitution obligates our government to preserve and protect the rights that our founders recognize come from God, our creator, not our government. I believe that scripture in the Bible is very clear that God is the one that raised up each of you and God has allowed us to be brought here to this specific moment in time. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Well, good morning. It is Monday, December 11th, and a little over six weeks since the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, was elected by the U.S. House of Representatives. And uh, this has been a really great thing, I think, for America as a whole. And um, I have been very excited to see his speakership and that direction. And so joining me now to uh, break this down, also answer a few other things uh, that we want to get into today is Congressman Bob Good from the great state of Virginia, who was one that uh, was for the ouster of Kevin McCarthy and uh, came on this show actually and said, we're going to actually have a a, a fair um, election. We're going to have a race, an actual race for the speakership. And so uh, Congressman Bob Good, um, how are things going now in Congress? There's a lot going on. Uh, what rating do you give to Speaker Mike Johnson? And what can you tell us about how uh, Congress's priorities have perhaps changed uh, since the Speaker's uh, tenureship? Good morning, Jen, and great to be with you. Thanks for having me again. Uh, you know, this is going to be a pivotal week for the Republican House majority. Uh, the swamp is deep and it's dark, and you sort of cut off the snake's head uh, with the removal of the speaker, but uh, the swamp tries to regenerate itself, if you will, and doesn't give up easily. It certainly tries to strike back. And this is going to be a pivotal week for the Republican majority. As you noted, our new speaker, Mike Johnson, uh, is, a, is, a, is a strong believer. He's a godly man. He loves the Lord. He's driven by his deep personal faith. What you've seen uh, exhibited since he became speaker is what I've seen in my three years in Congress in his personal life and the way he carries himself in the House. And that's why he had was able to uh, rise, uh, feeling a call, and, and, and rise to the level of speakership with, with little in the way of opposition because he was widely respected and admired across the conference. And um, and uh, I believe he's a genuine conservative. I believe he loves the country and wants to do the right things. However, all that said, uh, this is performance-based, and it's not personal. We've got to judge uh, members of Congress by their actions and what they do. And, and unfortunately, uh, he's got the wrong people in his ear as well and the wrong influence in Washington uh, trying to lead him in the wrong direction. And this is going to be a pivotal week uh, this week. Uh, I, one of the reasons why I oppose the continuing resolution, uh, both continuing resolutions, uh, the one that was done by the former speaker, kind of sort of his last act on September 30, and then the more recent one a few weeks ago now under Speaker Johnson, was because Congress, unfortunately, historically, needs the pressure of the calendar or deadlines to do its job. And as you know, it's been many years since we've passed individual spending bills. It's been many years since we reduced spending we're facing our greatest fiscal crisis ever. But my fear was, and, and that of my 
conservative colleagues in the House Freedom Caucus was if we relieved the pressure of the deadline of funding the government, that once again we would fail to pass our spending bills. And unfortunately, we haven't put an emphasis on those individual bills. None have been passed since we did this most recent continuing resolution, which, as you know, was a laddered or tiered uh, continuing resolution with some of the government funding expiring January 19 and some of it expiring February 2. Well, this week is the last week we're scheduled to be in D.C. until we come back around January 10. So we're supposed to leave D.C. Thursday of this week. Uh, and, you know, we don't have the spending bills on the docket to come uh, this this week. And so we're going to leave D.C. apparently uh, without having passed more bills. And then we'll only have a week until part of the government funding expiration reaches us on January 19. So, but more than that, there's there's some concerns with the National Defense Authorization Act and the extension of the FISA surveillance, you know, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act that allows the federal government, the FBI, our intelligence agencies to spy on U.S. citizens in violation of our constitutional rights. Uh, This week, uh, my fear is we're going to take the National Defense Authorization Act and combine it with an extension of FISA without the reforms that are needed and try to put the two of them together on suspension of the rules with a tremendous amount of Democrat votes combined with moderate Republicans and pass two bad pieces of legislation combined together representing, frankly, everything that's wrong with Washington. So we need everybody to reach out to their Republican representative. If they have a Republican member of Congress that represents them and tell them they want them to vote against a backroom deal negotiated National Defense Authorization Act that doesn't have the good Republican reforms that were in our version of the bill last summer, and combined with a FISA extension that doesn't have the reforms that Andy Biggs and uh, Chip Roy and Jim Jordan have negotiated, frankly, that passed out a Judiciary Committee 35 to 2, even on a bipartisan basis. Jerry Nadler and the Democrats voted with Jim Jordan Republicans to reform FISA to protect our constitutional liberties and freedoms from uh, uh, an abusive Department of Injustice. And, but my fear is that we're going to get a – because they're not sure the Senate will pass that, that we're just going to extend FISA without the reforms with a bad NDAA that doesn't include the Republican priorities of stripping out the LGBTQ policies, the transgender surgeries, the funding for abortion, the climate emphasis, the CRT, DEI emphasis, those sorts of things that are in the Democrat version. My fear is we're going to pass a bad NDAA combined with FISA surveillance extension. And uh, so the American people, we're trying to ring the bell and let everybody know that that's scheduled to come to the floor this week, and we've got to defeat it. And I hope everyone listening is is paying attention to that <clears throat> and the and the call from Congressman uh, Bob Good to call your member of Congress uh, and and to say that they need to pass the uh, the conservative version of FISA reforms. If we've learned anything over the last few years, it is how much the deep state is out of control and how all of this unconstitutional action is going on. And the only thing that uh, we can do to fix it is to genuinely pass these types of reforms. And so, um, Congressman, you mentioned that, you know, some of the, the the bad people or the wrong people are in the ear of Speaker Johnson. Um, can you name those people or, or at least describe what their priorities are and why he would be listening to them potentially instead of uh, having a more genuinely conservative coalition that can have the right priorities? Well, I think it's a combination of those 
uh, who are addicted to the status quo, uh, Washington working for them versus Washington working for the people. So uh, whether it's the, the elites, the lobbyists, the donor class, uh, the special interests, as well as moderate entrenched members of Congress who don't want change, again, because the system works for them, or whether it's staff that are not the true genuine conservatives that Speaker Johnson is. I think it's a mix of those influences. And admittedly, the Speaker you know, inherited a difficult, extremely difficult situation and a difficult hand you know, to, to become Speaker towards the end of October when you know, we haven't done our work, we haven't cut our spending, we haven't brought a, a, a balanced budget to the floor, uh, and we've got a very narrow majority getting more narrow by the day. Uh, so you've got those kind of influences upon him in a very difficult situation. And then also, he, unfortunately, I, I, I think he fears uh, that the Republican conference will not stand behind him strongly, resolutely in the battle that might risk a government shutdown from a funding standpoint. I think he also fears, uh, because of influences from the Intelligence Committee, that, oh, we cannot let FISA expire at the end of the year, because if it expires, even for a moment, you're going to have you know, a terrible terrorist uh, act situation, which no one can say would certainly would never happen. But you cannot continue to extend unconstitutional trampling on our most basic essential rights and freedoms in this country in the name of fear. Uh, What's the famous quote? Uh, Someone said, you know, those who will trade, this is a bad paraphrase, but those who will trade uh, safety in exchange for liberty you know, are deserving of neither and will we'll, we'll have ultimately neither, something to that effect. And, you know, we, we can't, we, in this country, we, we don't trade our constitutional freedoms uh, in exchange for some semblance of perceived safety. And so we can't continue to do that on a macro level as it applies to this vice surveillance. Uh, so, you know, Republican or Democrat, you know, we need to everyone to reach out to their elected representatives and say, we don't want five, six. We want the good judiciary bill that passed out of committee 35 to two. There isn't an, there's an intelligence committee version, which doesn't have the necessary reforms. That's not what we want. We want the good judiciary bill, the Jim Jordan authored bill, along with Andy Biggs, Chip Roy, those guys, uh, again, that passed 35 to two. And we need an NDAA that is truly negotiated. Again, we pa- I voted against the NDA, National Defense Authorization Act, three or four times when the Democrats had the majority because it didn't focus on lethality and force readiness and effectiveness. It focused on wokeness and weakening our military. Well, we passed a good one out of the Republican House this past summer, and it was supposed to go into negotiations with the conference committee. Good people like Scott Perry on that committee, the chairman of the House Freedom Caucus, you know, former general – Army general, uh, but instead there's a secret back deal, backroom deal negotiation that stripped away almost all the good Republican improvements and reforms that they're trying to bring to the House floor under suspension of the rules, takes a two-thirds vote, so we can defeat it if uh, the uh, the constituents, the voters will get engaged and let their let their representatives know we do not want you know a a, a backroom deal negotiated. NDAA that doesn't have the good Republican reforms, or we certainly don't want it combined with a FISA extension that doesn't have the reforms that are necessary to protect our constitutional liberties and rein in an abusive uh, federal intelligence agencies. 
And I'm talking with Congressman Bob Good, and this is the call to action this morning for everyone listening, because uh, we do want to ensure that our values are represented on Capitol Hill. And so you have an opportunity in this last week of session before uh, the holiday recess to call your member of Congress and also to pray for uh, Speaker Mike Johnson that he would know that the good conservative coalition and the good conservative leaders like Congressman Bob Good, our our friends um, Chip Roy, Jim Jordan, um, who join frequently as well, that um, that they're all going to stand with him and that he needs to stand strong for conservative values. And um, Congressman Good, um, you have been a, a stalwart champion for conservative values for the Constitution on Capitol Hill. And uh, one of the things that, that I wanted to give you an opportunity to address this morning as well is, you know, while the Hill is, is focused and should be focused on these types of priorities, you also have a lot of infighting uh, within the Republican majority because of the presidential primary, which I find so unfortunate that so many, and, and, and so ridiculous, frankly, that so many good people like yourself are now being called um, disloyal, fake MAGA traitors. Um, this was actually a, a tweet by your fellow member of Congress, Marjorie Taylor Greene, simply because you had endorsed Governor DeSantis. She accused you of being caught trashing President Trump. And this video just explains why you endorsed Governor DeSantis back in May. And you highlight some policy differences and you're actually talking about policy and that should be a legitimate debate but now this this call to blind loyalty and calling people traitors how do you respond to that well it's unfortunate that a member of congress like the the general lady that you mentioned that she would you know distribute a, a an clearly edited video by a political opponent someone who's ambitiously one of my challengers uh, and, and she would, you know, it's clearly edited. It takes out the part portions that demonstrate my praise and admiration and affection for President Trump. And, it, you know, it's sliced up to try to convey a message that wasn't accurate. Uh, it's, it's unfortunate, uh, um, Representative Green, you know, she made a deal with Kevin McCarthy to support him in exchange for getting the committee assignment she wanted a year ago. She unfortunately experienced a lot of backlash from her district and her former supporters because, uh, her support for Kevin McCarthy was not consistent with her the brand and the way that she had presented herself in her first couple of years in Congress. And then uh, her response to that was to try to lie, smear, and attack those of us who were challenging Kevin McCarthy to try to uh, a futile effort to try to make herself look better. You know, she was lying, smearing, and attacking us. Um, and you know she's un- she's apparently angry at those who didn't support Kevin McCarthy. She's angry at the Freedom Caucus because she was kicked out of the Freedom Caucus, and she's angry because Kevin McCarthy was removed from office. And so she's lashing out uh, towards those she sees as her political opponents. And I think that's unfortunate that she or others would again distribute a, what is clearly an edited video by a political hack who's you know trying to challenge me in a primary. Uh, that said, you know I. Uh, I'm an enthusiastic supporter of President Trump. I enthusiastically supported him in 2016 and 2020. Um, and if he is our nominee, and he may well be, he's obviously heading the polls. He's doing very well. The, the, the country's sort of rallying around him because of the abuse of Department of Injustice, the abuse of prosecutors who are persecuting him as a political opponent, and and uh, and pe- people are rallying around him accordingly for that. But. Uh, I endorsed Governor DeSantis back in May because I, I think he's has been America's governor. I think the job that he did in Florida is outstanding to take a purple state and make it a bright red state to win by half a point, you know, four years ago and then turn around and win by 20 points. 
Uh, and and frankly, it wasn't. You know, people misconstrue you know, these these political opponents. Oh, if you're for Governor DeSantis, that means you're against President Trump. That's certainly not true. I just think we need eight years of leadership. Uh, I'm concerned about the impact of these uh, weaponized Department of Injustice and these weaponized prosecutors against him. That that will. He, he will struggle through the course of the year to work through that. I think he'll ultimately be exonerated. I think he's, he'll win on appeal, but I'm fearful of what a corrupt, uh, dishonest Atlanta court or New York court might do uh, from a conviction standpoint that I believe will ultimately be overturned because I think it is bogus political persecution. Uh, but, uh, but you know, I, I will rally behind our nominee enthusiastically, whether I think it's a two-person race. I've always believed it's a two-person race. And uh, you, you don't, and, and even in that video, you can tell you know you don't hear me criticizing the president. If someone asks me privately to compare and contrast, why did I choose to support uh, Governor DeSantis? Obviously, I explain why, but uh, but uh, only in that context of, of comparing and contrasting. And uh, I'll, I'll support President Trump again if he is our nominee enthusiastically, uh, while my endorsement went to Governor DeSantis. Well, thank you, um, Congressman Good, for that, and I think that that is a reasonable and 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 rational response. And it's not about trashing one candidate or the other; it's about uh, comparing and contrasting a record and ultimately choosing who you believe will be the best fighter for our country. And that's what we always do in primaries. And it's been very, um, frankly discouraging to me to see that uh, that simply an endorsement for Governor DeSantis or someone else is now looked at as trashing President Trump. I think that we can, as conservatives, look closely at the record. We can critique. We should be doing that regardless of personality or uh, or those types of feelings. And so I think that's um, an entirely legitimate response. And um, and I'm thankful that you stand firm with that. So we'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. Finally, some good news. Because of you, Preborn has rescued over 44,000 babies this year alone. Right now, thousands of mothers are awaiting birth of their precious babies, and thousands upon thousands of babies are taking their first breath. Since its beginnings, Preborn's Networks of Clinics has rescued over 270,000 babies. That is a miracle. The overturning of Roe versus Wade only made the left more ravenous for the blood of the innocent. So now we need to be more passionate to save babies. Thanks to Preborn, we can do just that. For $28, you can empower a mother to choose life. Once she sees the precious life growing inside of her and hears her baby's heartbeat, she is twice as likely to choose life. And right now, through your match, your gift is doubled. Please give your most generous gift that will go 100% toward life. Just dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 baby or go to preborn.com. That's preborn.com. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. And if you missed the last segment, Congressman Bob Good from the great state of Virginia was encouraging everyone today to call 
their member of Congress, their representatives, and encourage them to stand firm uh, to vote for the uh, the House Judiciary package that was going to reform uh, the uh, reform FISA and not just continue to fund it without some necessary reforms. Because if we've learned one thing over the last few years, it is how much our institutions of government are really not uh, serving the American people. And uh, this has been highlighted in a great piece uh, from our friend Oren McIntyre, who is a contributor to Blaze Media, in an opinion piece titled, Don't Conserve Institutions That Hate You. Uh, Conservatives cannot slowly infiltrate existing institutions the way the left did because conservatism is not a form of civilizational entropy. The mechanics are simply not the same. So Oren joins us now. And I think this is a great piece, uh, Oren, but why don't you break down your your premise that uh, basically we need to simply destroy rather than conserve these institutions that clearly do hate us and our freedoms. Yeah, I think it's really difficult for a lot of conservatives who just instinctually, of course, want to protect the things that they identify with their culture. It's in the name. They're conservative. It's what we want to do. It's our natural disposition. And in a good and healthy society, it's exactly what you should do. That That's your job. That's your role as someone who's trying to preserve the culture and the values that are passed on by these institutions that were originally designed to serve you. But what we've seen is during this cultural revolution, these institutions have been infiltrated by people who are actively against the American way of life, actively despise and want to transform America. And so those institutions have been completely turned 180 degrees from their original purpose. And now they serve much different purposes, and they are actively destroying the kinds of things that they were designed to protect. And so conserving them is actually conserving the kind of thing that's directly attacking your traditions and your values. And so the institutions that you talk about and you mention in the the article are, for example, um, the Department of Education that simply indoctrinates the Department of Defense um, that defends the borders of foreign nations, the Department of Justice that ensures we live under uh, tyranny and you know and and so forth. And so um, so contrast you know some of these that that were um, essentially creatures of the state and particularly the executive branch rather than institutions that we do still fundamentally need that are constitutional, like for example. Example, um, you know, the separation of powers, the legislative, executive, overall, and judiciary. What type of institutions are we actually discussing? Well, as we know, again, many of these institutions, Department of Justice, Department of Defense, I mean, you need to, of course, defend your borders. That's the purpose of a government in the first place is to defend the welfare and the safety of its people to keep those who are dangerous or don't belong in the country out. You know, you should have a department that's involved in enforcing the law. But what we see is instead the Department of Justice goes around and persecutes innocent people, goes after pro-life uh, activists. It goes after people like President Trump. It goes after its political enemies while giving slaps on the wrist to Black Lives Matter protesters and others who violate the law frequently. We often see the Department of Education go out of its way. You can't teach kids to read or write, but it can teach them to hate the color of their skin or that they need to go through some kind of dangerous gender reassignment surgery. These are the kinds of things that are now being taught. And so these institutions are actively asked 
acting against the well-being of the people and against the purposes they were created for. You're right that this means that, we, of course, we still have to have institutions in the United States, but we have to understand that the ones that have been established traditionally, unfortunately, seem to have fallen away in very serious ways. And so what we have to do is we have to think about the ways that we can address those problems and think about ways that we can rebuild and remake things that will preserve our culture, preserve our values, preserve our way of life, but will rip out the poison and the rot that has seeped into these existing institutions. And I'm speaking with Oren McIntyre, who is a contributor to Blaze Media, and his great piece is in uh, The Blaze that is titled, Don't Conserve Institutions That Hate You. And and I think that this does, this whole idea of, of literally tearing down or getting rid of or dismantling or defunding uh, some of these institutions really does go against the traditional grain of what conservatives are used to, which is simply uh, to conserve the best or to maybe moderately reform, uh, rather than something that would be um, considered a little bit more of a um, of an extreme position to say no we actually need to uh, be hostile to these institutions as as a policy prerogative and and that is something that that I think for conservatives we need to consider um, because as you mentioned in this piece Oren um, these institutions are not uh, are not just benign they're not uh, ones that are 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 not with um, without bias, and so they're not just continuing on as uh, you know the um, the Department of Education, for example, itself doesn't have some kind of um, fundamental corruption and bias at its core that needs to just be completely eradicated rather than saying, well, we just need to populate it with good people. Well, even if you populate a corrupt institution with good people, that doesn't necessarily fix the problem. So how do we really argue that to traditional conservatives that are so used to more moderate reform rather than this type of destruction and rebuilding? Well, you know, I quote G.K. Chesterton in here, and he just has a great passage in Orthodoxy uh, where he notices this. He says, you know, if you have a white post and you just leave it alone, if we just have these neutral institutions, we think we have these neutral institutions, and we just leave it alone, it won't stay a white post. It's going to get battered. It's going to get destroyed. It's going to become a black post very quickly. So you have to constantly be repainting this post white. And if you fail to do that, if you're not maintaining it and and constantly pushing its value, keeping it, maintaining what it is, then at some point you have to have a revolution. You have to have a way in which you return. If you want that old white post, at some point you have to have a new white post to replace it. And I think we have to understand that while we have watched the left use the long march of institutions to work its way into many of these places, we do not have the same mechanism because conservatives build. Conservatives are ones that are are maintaining and building. They're not about chaos. They're not about entropy. So they can't just slowly wear away the values of these institutions the way the left did. That's how they won with the long march of the institutions. So we have to have a very different approach. Mm. And, and I think that that goes along with, um, you know, one of the, the first laws of physics that, you know, we go from order to chaos. And so mm-hmm. naturally. And so, as you mentioned, these aren't uh, politically neutral institutions. And so we have to continue to rebuild and to preserve and protect. And and some of these institutions that have just gotten um, so fundamentally out of control and, and are, I think, unconstitutional at their very inception, like a Department of Education, um, 
rather than looking at reforming that or just saying, well, let's use it for a good purpose or let's uh, try to root out the corruption in it. Some of these things just simply need to be uh, completely defunded and disbanded. And one of the uh, the policy platforms that Governor DeSantis, for example, is running on, and one of the things that uh, that even President Trump promised in his first uh, four years and ultimately uh, didn't do, but, but at least had a, the good idea for, is to completely just uh, get rid of the Department of Education. And some of these things that are so out of control because we have such a uh, a large federal government that our founders never intended, can we at this point in America's history actually accomplish that? Or is that just a campaign promise of Governor DeSantis and kind of, you know, the pipe dream that was a campaign par- promise that was ultimately unfulfilled of President Trump? Yeah, that's a great question, because you have to remember that Ronald Reagan ran on getting rid of the Department of Education back when it was just a few years old. You know, and so that's how long, that's how many Republican administrations, even Republican giants, have failed at what seems like a very basic task, right? It's it's an executive uh, department. Of course, you you should be able to exercise control of that. And that should probably tell us something really important about the flow of power in the Constitution, the fact that multiple Republican presidents have promised to do exactly this thing over this department that they directly uh, control, that they directly exercise executive authority, constitutional authority over, and have failed to do a very simple thing. Uh, And everyone from Ronald Reagan up to Donald Trump has failed at this task. And while, of course, I hope that Ron DeSantis would be successful, I think we need to be realistic and probably take a lesson about what that means about the distribution of power inside the United States government. Just because something is in the Constitution doesn't mean it actually happens. There's some difference between de facto and de jure. And of course, you, you cannot just expect some of these changes to take place because someone promises on the campaign trail. But I do think that means that we need to get inventive about the way that we attack the value of some of these institutions. For instance, in the piece, I talk about the importance of undermining the college credential and making sure that that is no longer solely the way that people receive uh, employment in the United States. There's so much power wrapped up in our educational system because it dictates the ability of people to advance themselves in a socioeconomic manner. And so being able to come at that from a different direction may be a way to get around all the bureaucratic bloat and other things that are protecting departments like the Department of Education. And, and this really makes a lot of sense, um, Oren McIntyre from Blaze Media. And you know, you in this piece toward alternative institutions and some of these practical steps. And and I actually love that you use the term um, reimagining because a lot of a lot of times that is a a key word of the leftists that they want to reimagine institutions. This is what you know we saw in their whole BLM push for uh, criminal justice reform and actually uh, taking down and, and defunding uh, police and and their whole uh, campaign in 2020 for that. But I think that that is actually an apt word for us to kind of harness and to say, well, if that's what the left is doing, and they're basically being completely unconstitutional in their policy uh, directions, then the right, as as you write, can begin with the development of some alternatives. And we do need to start actually doing that. And it can't just come from within the government itself, because we know that there are so many uh, different um, NGOs and uh, and and other 
um, ideologues that influence Washington. And so we need to start actually making some of these practical changes because if conservatives just sit around and complain and all we're doing is saying, well, we need to take a drastic step of completely destroying this or leaving it the way that it is. And it's kind of this all or nothing. It becomes the same approach we've had to pro-life legislation where some people say, well, if it's not a, a bill that bans abortion from the moment of conception, then I'm not for it. Rather than taking some of these incremental steps toward a better constitutional protection for the future. So um, in just the last few minutes that we have here, how can we establish some alternative processes besides you know, the, one of the ones that you've already uh, described, which is the credentialing process, but for things like some of these overwhelming corrupt institutions uh, that are part of the federal government that really have no place in our process? Well, I mean, so at the federal government level, obviously, then you need, you know, uh, you need full power. You know, that's a situation where if we're getting rid of those corrupt institutions that are at the federal level, if we're getting rid of extraneous institutions that that have bloated and and have expanded their mission, that's going to require a gutting of the administrative state on a level that I like, for instance, that uh, that uh, Vivek Ramaswamy has talked about. I'm glad that he's bringing that you know, knowledge to people, but that is truly going to require a president with a singular vision and a, an FDR or Lincoln willingness to wield kind of a large amount of executive power in the face of very corrupt uh, apparatus. And so I think that's, that, that's something that is, is a big step and would be great, but I think it is probably something that, unfortunately, I don't think Trump or DeSantis is, is quite ready to do yet. Trump has threatened to. He says, day one, I'm, I'm, I'll be a dictator in day one, at least, and then I'll go back to being president. Maybe he will, maybe he won't. I don't know if, if either of them are ready to wield executive power on that level. But I do think there are practical steps, like I mentioned, with the credentialing system that allow us to do things without having necessarily captured all of the power of Washington, D.C., or having someone who's willing to completely remake the executive uh, power at the moment and use it to slash and destroy many of these uh, institutions that have bloated themselves. But again, those are two different strategies. I think it's important for conservatives to have a vision for that top level of power and how to wield it, but also how to take practical steps in the moment when it comes to things like owning their own business, credentialing their own employees, seeking their own child's education, these kind of things. I think you have to have both the high and the low strategy. Yeah, and I think that Oren, this also highlights um, when you mention the you know, ownership and um, being responsible for our own um, employees and our own uh, our own children's education and all of these things. It, it highlights how conservatives have also been over the last um, several decades too dependent on government to provide the solutions. And we think that, oh, the only solution is at the ballot box. If we just vote in someone, whether it's a Trump or a DeSantis, then they will solve all of the problems for America. And that is actually abdicating the rights that we have under the Constitution and the powers that we have uh, to direct our own lives, our own welfare, and our own country. And we need to reclaim, truly, we the people, and not just be so dependent on whoever is in elected office. Obviously, they need to be good people, but we need to, as conservatives, genuinely understand that our Constitution is to protect our liberties and our own power to direct some of these things in our own lives. So uh, the piece, again, is uh, Don't Conserve Institutions That Hate You in Blaze Media. And Oren McIntyre, always appreciate it. You should follow him on X. And we'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning.
We want to welcome a new sponsor to American Family Radio, and I hope you give them your full support, and that's Christian Healthcare Ministries, chministries.org. If you're like most of us, you're feeling the strain of rising healthcare costs. Well, good news, Christian Healthcare Ministries may be the answer you're looking for. CHM is an affordable, faith-based option to traditional healthcare that provides members the freedom to choose doctors without worrying about networks or waiting periods since they are not insurance. Can you say freedom? CHM is the longest serving health cost sharing ministry and has been around for over 40 years, helping Christians pay for and pray for one another's medical bills. They are tried and true and have members in all 50 states and around the world and have covered billions in medical bills. Members not only get advantages from the affordability, flexibility, and reliability of CHM, but they also receive access to 24-7 telehealth services at no additional cost. It's no surprise that doctors across the country appreciate working with CHM, and so will you. Make the switch today by visiting chministries.org slash AFR. That's chministries.org slash AFR. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. And welcome back. So we have continued to talk about everything going on in Israel, and uh, there has been so much in terms of the fallout over um, a lot of the uh, the anti-Semitism, a lot of the pro-Palestine uh, speech, and this has apparently revived a lot of the questions that the left is now suggesting we should discuss on curtailing free speech and, and hate speech, really, uh, but they, they just want, that means non-preferred speech, on social media and a lot of these different questions. And so the left will never, ever not use a pretext in order to simply accomplish what they want, which is, of course, simply control over the preferred narratives that uh, they want to be able to control in terms of all of these social media platforms. And so our good friend Alan Mashburn, who is from the great state of North Carolina, and he is running for lieutenant governor there, um, posted a tweet that said, free speech is the ability of the populace to express themselves freely, has nothing to do with funding a false narrative or a material of reverse racism. The Constitution empowers the people and limits the government, not vice versa. The government does not have the express power of the First Amendment, only the people. Thus, your argument is null and void. And this was in response uh, to another uh, person who, who I don't know who this is. His name is Kyle Parrish that, that uh, he tweeted, if you say you believe in free speech and then work to ban DEI, CRT, and or discussions about climate, you are full of expletive and actually oppose free speech. Um, so Alan Mashburn joins us now. And Alan, th- this is such a, a ridiculous concept to say that if you are for free speech, but you want to say that certain curriculum is inappropriate, for example, like porn for minors, then, oh, that's now anti-free speech. And then on the flip side, the left wants to say, well, if there is so much now anti-Semitic comments and remarks that are proliferating social media, well, we need to be able to identify and ban not only misinformation, whatever that means, but also uh, this so-called hate speech. And I think this is two sides of the same false coin that simply boils down to the left wants to control speech. The left, uh, and good morning, Jenna. Thank you. It's always an honor. The left always want to, they want to control the narrative. And 
they fall short on all counts because, number one, they do not love the country. They do not love the Constitution. They only want to use it against us. And then they accuse us of what they're actually doing. So the First Amendment is for the people. The Constitution is for the people. It empowers the people. It does not empower the government. And I'm not – I'll say the I consider you to be the constitutional scholar, certainly not me. But I know my rights. I know my country. I know my history. The, the, the Constitution was written for us to restrain government, to empower the people. And that does not mean that they can take uh, their, their little illusions uh, uh, and delusions of hate and, and figurative meanings, and I, I'm looking at transgenderism now, and spread it over and call that uh, freedom of speech. That is their agenda, and that is what we have resolved in our heart to fight because it's, it's just crumbling the foundation of this land. Yeah, absolutely. And then this goes back, Alan Mashburn, to how we do need to understand what the Constitution protects. And as you very aptly put this, the Constitution empowers the people and limits the government, not vice versa. And and I think that a lot of people have this idea that um, we have f- speech and, and free speech only if, where, and when the government allows us to exercise it, rather than understanding that that the federal government and now by virtue of the 14th amendment through to the states the government in general has no power no power by which to legislate to to restrict a speech and on the flip side of that as well uh, the the government has no power to compel speech and this is what we've seen in a lot of the uh, the constitutional cases that have made their way up to the Supreme Court like uh, the cake baker and the 303 creative case in last term where the government is trying to compel a message and participation in a message that the speaker sincerely disagrees with. And the First Amendment does not give the government that power. So when it comes to actually um, educating conservatives and to say, you know, we need to not just have this um, this very simplistic view of what the First Amendment means – how do we continue to to promote that and to recognize that this is this is some some very basic civics that I'm very concerned that our youngest generations especially really aren't recognizing and so they become ripe for some of this um, absolute infringement by the government. Well, you hit it uh, the nail on the head. Well, we have uh, failed in educating our young people. Um, the government, the federal government, have now they have completely hijacked or tried to hijack their mentality in thinking that they are the, the the solver of all of our problems, and in effect, they've taken many of our liberties away in a subtle way, but in a very insidious way. And we've allowed it. We've enjoyed our freedom. We've enjoyed being ignorant, so to speak, and not realizing, not knowing, and trusting people. And we send the same people back to office all the time, and we've seen them get bought out. That's a that's a larger problem. Let's go back and address what you did because I, I'm a, I, that that can go everywhere. Uh, what you what you brought to us, we have to educate our young people. We have to educate our the conservative movement, and to do that, we have to teach a Bible, a uh, biblical worldview, and we also have to teach 
the value of this nation and the value of freedom. We have to teach the constitutional freedoms, uh, the constitutional amendments and principles. It was John Adams that said our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. What I want to tell the left, this government wasn't even made for you and your way of thinking and mentality. So we have to propagate the gospel if we want to change America. It's not just changing minds. We have to change hearts. And I don't mean to preach this morning, but it goes along the same lines of, of educating. We have failed in this area. If we want to save this country, it's not found in DeSantis. It's not found in Trump. It's not found in any one person except Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. And you can preach anytime because I, that's one of the reasons I love having you on. And um, and I love hearing your commentary, Alan Mashburn, because you're absolutely right that this isn't just about a system of government. It is about the fundamental worldview that our government uh, was built Upon And our founders recognized that these freedoms and these protections and the limitations of government uh, would only serve a moral and upright uh, people. And for Speaker Johnson, for example, when um, he was absolutely ridiculed by the left for responding to a question saying, if you want to know my policy positions and you want to know how I think, um, then open your Bible and, and read it. And and the left just could not fathom this. It was like you were watching in real time their heads explode. And it was and it was hilarious because it just shows how completely distorted they understand the government to be because they're focused on the power that government has rather than the limitations and the rights that the people preserve. And they do not get at all the foundational premise of what a biblical worldview genuinely means. And this is why we have to continue to not just talk about, as you rightly mentioned, um, the politics and the, the personalities and you know the people running for office. That's that's ultimately that that's important. But that is a very very narrow piece of it. If we actually, as a society, came back to a foundation of being a a society that was built on the Judeo Christian worldview, we recognized that. Then we would be like the, the the first few presidential elections where we had great options, and it wasn't this giant chasm of contrast between Republican priorities and Democrats. It would just be pro-America. And I hope, I sincerely hope, Alan, that we have an opportunity in this country to get back to that foundational premise. Do you think that we are so far gone um, in terms of our worldview and a post-God, post-truth society? Or can we get back to that? Because politics truly is downstream from culture. It is, and, and barring a revival of what we've seen and, and what we've read about in history, barring a revival, I don't think we'll ever return back to the days of the Andy Griffith Show or, or things of that. Uh, I, I've, I've, I've come to terms with that. Uh, we are in a postmodernistic society. We know how this is going to play out, according to Bible prophecy. Uh, I think we have to focus on strengthening the things that remain uh, where we are. Raising that standard, we still have children and grandchildren to fight for. Uh, that's not to say that a revival cannot happen. We should pray for that every day. Uh, uh, an outpouring of that would be—it would change things. Uh, salvation of souls would be a byproduct of revival. We'll study the great revivals of history. It can happen, but we have to seek God for it, because only He can give it. 
Um, and Amen to that. I think our attitude has to change in this. Yes, and and I think that is the key, and you hit the nail on the head there, Alan, that our attitude has to change instead of being so focused on partisan politics and, you know, whether someone is a Trump supporter or a DeSantis supporter, you know, whatever. At the end of the day, we need to be focused on promoting the truth of the gospel of Christ and being more concerned about impacting our culture for Christ than anything else. I mean, if you look at at the left and the way that they have systematically infiltrated our government, our institutions, but mainly our culture over the last 50 and 60 years, especially with the rise of the sexual revolution and everything uh, that has happened in our judicial process and and our government and everything that has outflowed from that as well. Um, If you look at that, it's true. I think the left truly wants to change the world and our culture sometimes even more than conservatives do and and by that i mean that we are sometimes so focused just on um the the outward we're so focused on policy and politics that we fail to look at the bigger picture of genuinely being world changers. And this goes back to what you and I talk about a lot, which is the failures of the church in America. And we've seen how the LGBTQ movement has infiltrated churches. We've seen weak doctrine, weak theology. It has to start not in just in the church. It should start in the church, but also in the home. If parents aren't teaching children these foundational doctrinal theological truths, then is it any wonder that they go to college in some of these institutions and have no baseline to correctly and rightly divide truth from error and discern uh, what is biblical and what is false? Absolutely. And we have mega churches preaching micro gospels. We have, we have preachers. Now I'm a pastor, so I, I can, I can say this and I'm going here because, uh, Pastors, if we don't get off of our blessed assurance and get in the Word of God and start preaching and conveying that message and be involved and be citizens and be biblical role models, promote, propagate the gospel, promote that uh, uh, biblical worldview. And I think it's important to, to teach classes in our churches about the love of country and how God formed this nation. And the reason why pastors don't get involved is fear. They can say that they are not political or what. You are political. you made a choice. Uh, and, and politics is not going to save us. But the point is you have to be that salt in life. And you cannot be salt unless the salt has gotten off the shelf and being applied to whatever it is to prevent the decay. You cannot be the light unless you turn that light on and invade the darkness. Mm, absolutely. And we have to continue to be the salt and light. And as we go into the Christmas season, Alan Mashburn, um, how would you encourage everyone listening to be focused on the truth of the gospel of Christ rather than just, um, you know, some of the, the top headlines and the things that divide or the things that discourage us? I would say turn the TV off, turn, the, turn the, uh, everything off concerning politics. Uh, choose you a date on the calendar and say from here until the end of the year, trust me, it will come back around January 1. Not, it's, it's like it's so proper. Not, not, not a whole lot, a lot of things are going to change. You'll pick up where Victor is, uh, you know, going around and, and seeing this like General Hospital. Uh, pick a time where you just have a, a focus time with your family and on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
because we have to do that. We have yeah. to recharge our batteries. We have to remain strong and spiritually fit in the fight. And Satan is all out attacking the nuclear Absolutely. family in this country. And Alan Mashburn, what a great encouragement. You can follow him at Mashburn4, the number 4NC. And what a great encouragement to be focused this holiday season on the things of the Lord and on family. And I hope that each one of you take that to heart. We'll be back tomorrow with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio. I want to thank my sponsors, Preborn and Christian Healthcare Ministries. Preborn Network Clinics have rescued over 200,000 babies from abortion, and every day they save 200 babies' lives. But they can't do it without our help. Will you head over to preborn.com slash AFR and sponsor an ultrasound? Christian Healthcare Ministries is the longest-serving health cost-sharing ministry, helping Christians pay for and pray for one another's medical bills. Make the switch today and start saving. Visit chministries.org AFR. That's chministries.org AFR.